precious name, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would anoint me to proclaim your truth today and that my own faulty reasoning and uh, my own uh, fallible thinking would not get in the way of your truth. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you also help me with, with my voice uh, through this uh, uh, flu that I have or whatever it is. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today. I pray that you would open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, uh, you would help us to understand more about those who are caught up in the Jesus-only movement uh, so that we could show them uh, in love uh, that you are three persons and that uh, we could uh, help lead them uh, out of that movement through the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, refuting the Jesus only movement. Um, the directions that I've got to get here today weren't that great. So we kind of we took a tour of uh, the, the nearby area and we, we ran across a, uh, an apostolic church. And uh, the apostolic churches are Jesus-only churches. Um, sometimes uh, the churches will be called uh, uh, Jesus' name Pentecostal church, that type of thing. And so one is Pentecostalism, Jesus-only movement, apostolic churches. They're all basically teaching the same thing. And that is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same person that God is only one person, so they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are more heresies that are involved with this movement than what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to try to provide scriptural evidence um, for the doctrine of the Trinity, i.e., we're going to show that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three uh, distinct persons, okay, that the one true God is three eternal persons. Now, uh, having said that, uh, there's more to the Jesus-only movement than just the denial of the Trinity. Certainly, the denial of the Trinity is the uh, number one issue that we need to deal with. Uh, but beyond that, there, there's also a rampant um, legalism. Um, it's not uncommon to find ladies that go to their churches who will, you know, who believe that they have to keep their necks completely covered, their wrists completely covered, their ankles completely covered, and um, and uh, that their ladies aren't allowed to wear makeup and things of that sort. Okay. So there's a, a tremendous legalism that is there, and it ends up becoming salvation uh, through faith in their Christ plus works. Okay. Um, they also believe in baptismal regeneration. That when you baptize a person in Jesus' name alone, because they believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus. Um, that that actually gives the person the new birth. 
So by trusting in Jesus for salvation, that doesn't save you. You then have to be water baptized and that saves you. Whereas the, uh, I, I believe the biblical position and uh, most Baptist, you know, Baptist churches would be in agreement with me on this. Uh, most evangelical churches would be in agreement. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And water baptism is just the outward sign uh, of the inward work that the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. Um, but they believe water baptism is what regenerates, what gives the new birth. Um, these guys broke off from the Pentecostal movement early in the 20th century. Okay? Now, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters believe that there's two classes of Christians. Those who are baptized with the Holy Spirit and evidence this by speaking in tongues and those who are not baptized by the Holy Spirit, kind of second class Christians. Well, that's obviously that's not biblical. These guys go even further with that. And, and the way they talk, they usually use the King James. Uh, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, as evidence speaking of tongues, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, then you don't have Jesus, because in their thinking, Jesus is the Holy Ghost. So instead of being a second-class Christian, if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. Okay? Um, and so there's lots of things you have to do to be saved. Besides believing in their Jesus, um, you've got to um, uh, do good works, be baptized in Jesus' name only, and speak in tongues. Okay? And baptism in Jesus' name only, of course, that's because uh, they believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So rather than baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they believe the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus, so they baptize in Jesus' name only. Now, let me say this um, on that last point. Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you read the book of Acts, the apostles baptized in Jesus' name. Over and over again it says that. Now it doesn't say that they said, we baptize you in Jesus' name. It just says that they baptize people in Jesus' name. The problem here is that the uh, oneness Pentecostals, much like um, regular Pentecostals, Trinitarian Pentecostals, misunderstand the whole concept of Jesus' name. Uh, in the scriptures, to pray in Jesus' name means that you pray in accordance with Jesus' will Thus, you have his authority, okay? If, uh, I never met uh, this gentleman over here. If, uh, if I had a check written to me, and I wanted uh, him to cash the check, I would sign my name on the back and hand him my driver's license. Then he would sign his name underneath it and go with my driver's license, and he could cash the check at his bank. But they would see because my name is there that he's going in my name and in accordance with my will. 
Okay? So he's going uh, with my authority and in accordance with my will. And that's the way it is with prayer, praying in Jesus' name. And that's probably all that is meant in the book of Acts when the apostles uh, were baptized. They probably baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they were doing it in accordance with Jesus' will. They were doing it to further the name of Christ. They were doing it with his authority, and so they were doing it in Jesus' name. Now, what if I'm wrong? What if they really were baptizing in Jesus' name? I don't think Jesus would really have a problem with that. Um, they weren't quite clear, probably at that point, in the doctrine of the Trinity, although the clearest passages you will find in the scriptures are the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he speaks about the three persons of the Trinity himself included, and as three distinct persons. Um, but maybe they were a little unsure about it, you know, so they just decided, hey, we'll do it. He said baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll baptize in the name of the Son, in Jesus' name, and we think that'll be all right with Jesus. You know, Jesus would say, hey, if you go in my name, you also go in the name of, of my Father and the Holy Spirit. Not because they're all one person, but because they're in agreement. Um, so, uh, but whatever the case, you know, they make a, a, a big deal out of that and they're, they're going too far. Now, let me say this. The doctrine of the Trinity, too often, we act like the what of the doctrine of the Trinity or or that the doctrine of the Trinity is true is very, very deep and it goes beyond human understanding. That is not the case. That the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. And because the Bible teaches it, we know that it's true. Tremendous evidence that the Bible is God's Word, I think. If you examine the evidence, only a fool would say the Bible is not God's Word. Okay? And a fool isn't, in the biblical sense, isn't talking about a lack of intelligence, but it's talking about a hardened heart that refuses to submit to God and His Word. But um, that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, even a third grader, if they really studied this book, could figure that out. Now, how one God could be three persons, that's what goes beyond our understanding, okay? The important thing for us to recognize is this. It only makes sense that the infinite God in his basic nature would far transcend uh, human limited nature. So if I'm one person, if I'm one being, one thing that exists, and I'm one person, that doesn't mean because God is one being, he has to be one person, okay? And so uh, the how of the Trinity, that does go beyond uh, human understanding. Uh, but the what of the Trinity, the that of it, the fact that it's taught in the scriptures is very, very clear. This is all you have to put together to see the doctrine of the Trinity in the scriptures. The Bible teaches time and time again that there is only one God Okay? And you have this in your handouts. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord your God is, is one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, 
there is only one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 43.10. Excellent passage to use on Mormons, because whenever they see one, one God in the Scriptures, they'll say, well, that means one God, only one God of this planet. But there's a God for each planet. And, uh, well, this passage in Isaiah 43.10, God is speaking, basically saying, I alone am God. I'm the first, I'm the last. I alone am God. Before me there was no God for nor will there be one after me. So if you weren't God from all eternity, you're not going to become a God. I don't care what the Latter-day Saints teach. Okay? Um, but whatever the case, the list goes on and on in Scripture. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I mean, anybody who doesn't get that is really hurting. If you claim that the Bible is God's Word, and you don't see that it says over and over again there's only one God, something's wrong there. Now, later on today, I'm going to speak on the Word of Faith movement. And these name it and claim it guys, the pseudo-Christianity that is spreading like a cancer throughout this, this country, you know, when you're witnessing to your neighbor, they think that you're trying to get them into the Word of Faith movement, but those guys teach that Christians are gods with a small g. And uh, so uh, it's pretty much a no-brainer. The Scriptures teach there is only one God. The Father is called God. 1 Peter 1-2, Galatians 1-1, just, just to give you two, two passages there. But also the Son is called God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. The, the, the blessed hope of the church, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Granville Sharp rule of Koine Greek, of New Testament Greek, demands that both God and Savior refer to Jesus. No other way to translate. You can't make it uh, the glorious appearing of our God, comma, and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't do that. The grammar demands that God and Savior refer to Jesus. Um, by the way, Second Peter chapter one verse one, which is not in your notes, same thing, same grandpa sharp rule, and uh, Peter refers to Jesus as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians two nine, uh, Paul says about Jesus, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In John 1, 1, Jesus is talking about, uh, John is talking about Jesus before he becomes a man. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. So uh, it's real clear. Isaiah 9, 6, talking about the child that's going to be born, the Messiah, and he's referred to as the mighty God. Yeah. It's John, verse 14, God. Not, not, not eternal. Yeah, and, and the problem there isn't the... It's not the Jehovah's Witnesses' fault, it's Origen's fault, an early church father, who whenever he saw passages that talked about Jesus being the only begotten of the Father, he made Jesus begotten as God. And since he didn't want Jesus to have a beginning, he said that Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. And that has crept into the major creeds, the Nicene Creed, many of the major creeds of the Christian church, so that most Christian theologians today believe it to this day that 
that Jesus is eternally begotten Father. Now, I think the scriptures are clear. Jesus was never begotten as God, but at a point in time, he added a human nature, and the Father begat him as a man. So I would argue that when it talks about Jesus being begotten, it is talking about his human nature. It's not talking about his divine nature. Um, but the, they definitely have a point to make, but it's, it's a point against Origen's influence on the church. Um, but Isaiah 96, Jesus is called the mighty God. Uh, a little later, well, we'll mention it right now. Look down at point six. Also in Isaiah 96, not only is Jesus called the mighty God, but he's also called the everlasting Father, or the eternal Father. So, Jesus only people will capitalize on that and say, therefore, Jesus is the Father. There's different Hebrew words for Father, uh, but this is not the normal word for father as in a father-son relationship. This is more of the father as far as the originator of something. Like uh, uh, Soren Kierkegaard was the father of modern existentialism. John Dewey was the father of modern education. So he's kind of the founder or the origin or the cause. And so basically all Isaiah 9 says by calling Jesus the eternal father is calling him the eternal origin or the eternal creator. He's the eternal one who brought into existence, birthed into existence, all else that exists. Um, and now the Holy Spirit is called God in the scriptures. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Peter says, uh, tells them you have not lied uh, or he says you, you lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3 verse 4 he says you didn't lie to man you lied to God so the Holy Spirit is called God uh, you see this also in 1 Corinthians 3.16 so on all these points our oneness Pentecostal friends agree with us there is only one God. Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But they conclude, therefore, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same person. But the conclusion, that would be, by the way, that would be the logical thing to do if the scriptures didn't come right out and tell us that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Um, See, and that's just what they're doing is they're trying to drag God down to our level of existence. I am one being and I'm one person. Therefore, if God's one being, he's got to be one person. And what we're doing is we're finite beings, limited beings, trying to drag the unlimited, infinite God down to our level. It would be like, an illustration I often give is a single-cell animal. Just suppose for a minute that a single-celled animal has understanding. Obviously, it doesn't. But if a single-celled animal had understanding, it would say, look, I am one being, one thing that exists, and I am one cell. Phil Fernandez, at least the physical part of him, is comprised of trillions of cells. Therefore, he must be trillions of beings. 
Okay? Well, a single-celled animal would be wrong because I live on a higher level of existence than a single-celled animal does. And the same with us and God. Single-celled animal, if you're one being, you're one cell. Uh, humans, if you're one being, you have trillions of cells in your body. Um, but as a human, you're one being, you're one person. God's infinite existence, existence transcends ours so that somehow, some way, he is one being, one God, but three persons. Let me say this, too, before we move on. If we were saying that God is one God, but he's three gods, that's a contradiction. If we were saying that God is one person, but three persons, that is a contradiction. But we're not saying that. We're saying God is one God, but he's three persons. There's no contradiction there. Does it go beyond human understanding how that could be? You bet. But there's no contradiction there uh, whatsoever. It, it's, it's one of those things that goes beyond human reason but doesn't contradict human reason. Now, so they would agree with us on all of these points. So our point of contention with the Jesus-only people will be right here where they argue that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one person. We argue they are three separate persons. So we need to spend a little bit of time and talk on that. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Somebody tell me what's happening there. Anybody know memorization? That's when uh, Jesus is being baptized. Okay? He comes out of the water. Holy Spirit comes down and like a dove, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The earliest Jesus only people were actually father only people. Okay? And uh, they were civilians. Um, they uh, basically argued um, the fact that even before the civilians with the uh, modalistic uh, monarchians they basically believed that God is only one person who revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament as Jesus in the Gospels and as the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and on. Okay? The problem is that Jesus' baptism, all three of them show up. Who came out of the water? Jesus. So it wasn't Jesus who came on Jesus like a dove. And it wasn't Jesus' voice from heaven saying, This is my blood, so I'm well pleased. I actually talked to someone about that part. He claimed that Jesus was not the apostle. No. He still, he would have. They, they would say, say it was possible that what God would be guilty of is deception. I mean, it's, it's, you'd have Jesus actually throwing his voice. He yeah. yeah. just wouldn't go. Um, for, I, I treat it the same, but the father-only movement is kind of a, a thing of the past. That was the, the old form of God is one person. The newer form puts the focus on Jesus, okay? Um, but basically, with the modalistic, God has revealed himself as a different person in different ages. Here you see all three persons at one point in time. Now, the clearest passages on the Trinity are John 14. Once, once you have the other passages down, there's only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. 
Then you go to John 14, and the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had some important information to pass on to his disciples. And Jesus says this in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, count the people there. Jesus is speaking. And I, as one person mentioned, will pray the Father, as the second person mentioned. And he will give you another helper. That's the third person mentioned. Okay? The Holy Spirit. Now, if you try to make them all one person, this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, and I will pray to myself, and I will give you me. It makes no sense whatsoever. This only makes sense if the three persons are separate persons. Um, look at verse 26 of John 14. And that reads, so Jesus again speaking, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Again, this makes no sense if you try to force the one person view into this. Jesus is speaking and he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that's one person, whom the Father, the second person mentioned, will send in my name, that's the third person mentioned. It makes no sense if you try to make that uh, one person. Uh, in John 15, 26, Jesus again is speaking, but when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Okay, so again, try to make that one person. It does not work. Okay? Um, skip down to point C. We'll come back to point B in just a minute. But point C in John 17 uh, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and your Son also may glorify you. If the Father and Son are two separate persons, that makes no sense. First of all, why is Jesus praying to the Father when he's the same person? Jesus' only people will say this, that when Jesus prayed to the Father, it was Jesus the man praying to Jesus God. That is dangerous. It's called the Nestorian heresy, an ancient heresy, which divides Jesus into two distinct persons. If Jesus is two persons, one divine, one human, then who died on the cross for our sins? A human. And that's not the ultimately worthy sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Um, the hypostatic union, which the Christian Church has taught um, since at least uh, 320 A.D., uh, and is based on what the Scriptures teach about Jesus, is that Jesus is one person with two natures forever. In other words, Jesus existed as the second person of the Trinity, he existed as God, the second person of the Trinity, throughout all eternity, but at a point in time, he added a human nature to his divine nature so that he has both a human and divine nature but he's one person with those two natures okay 
So when Jesus says that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return, he's talking about his human nature. Okay? When he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he's talking about his divine nature. The two natures don't blend. Um, but whatever the case, to, to, to divide Jesus up into two different persons has been recognized. So you really... If Jesus is, if there's a human Jesus and a divine Jesus, then we're not supposed to worship the human Jesus. Yet the human Jesus accepted worship and even said that um, basically we have to honor him just as we honor the Father uh, in John 5, verse 23. Um, now, John 17, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify us again, praise the Father. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he's saying, before the universe was created, I already existed with you and shared your glory with you. Um, but again, it makes no sense if they're being spoken of uh, as uh, the same person. Um, in John chapter 5, verses 30 to 38, we don't have time to look at that. But the Jews were rejecting Jesus' testimony because they said, you know, the law says that you need two or three witnesses. So Jesus said, not only do I testify of myself, but my Father testifies of me as well. Okay? Now think about it. Let's say I'm on trial for committing a crime. And I sit up there in a witness stand I said, I didn't do it, I wasn't there, I didn't have a motive, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, you're, you're, you know, you're only one witness. Do you have another witness? And suppose I said, yeah, I do. They said, well, would you get him, please? And I said, sure. And then I come down from the witness stand. I walk and I sit down. I wait about 30 seconds. I stand up and I walk back and sit down in the witness stand. And I say, I'm, I'm the second witness, and I verify that Phil Fernandez didn't commit the crime. Okay? Yeah, I would be laughed out of court. How could I be two separate witnesses if I'm the same guy? Okay? If I'm the same person, I can't be two separate witnesses. When they asked Jesus, give us another witness besides yourself, Jesus said, yeah, it's not you. I'm not the only one who testifies of myself. My Father also testifies of me. And Jesus, by the way, did this also with the Holy Spirit said that the Holy Spirit also testifies of him. Okay? Um, in uh, John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What kind of sleight of hand is that? If Jesus is only one person, then he is coming down to do his own will. Because the one who sent him is himself, you know, he, he's just one person. And again, it makes no sense when you try to force the Jesus-only thinking into the scriptures, okay? Uh, in uh, Luke, Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is on the cross, Luke 23, uh, Jesus again is dialoguing with the Father. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
Okay? Then you go a little bit further to verse 46, and Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. If Jesus and the Father are the same person, that makes absolutely no sense. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Okay? Um, even when Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What is he doing talking like that if he is uh, just one person? God is just one person. Um, Jesus only people say that's Jesus the man talking to Jesus God. Again, then only a man died on the cross for our sins. All sin, even the smallest sin, is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, i.e. God. Therefore, the punishment, all sin deserves the ultimate in punishment, okay, which is the eternal lake of fire, eternal separation from God. Now, if God's going to remain just, all sin must be paid for before he can forgive it. And the only way to have a substitute sacrifice would be if that substitute sacrifice is an ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice. Anything less than God would not be a worthy sacrifice on the cross for sins. Certainly, Jesus had to be a perfect man, but at best, a perfect man can only suffer for one imperfect man. You're not going to get the, the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice unless that perfect man is also fully God. Okay? Um, so, uh, the Jesus who, was, who hung on the cross is God. He's God, the second person uh, of the Trinity. Um, now let's move back to point B. Genesis chapter 1 Verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image. And we know he wasn't talking to the angels because the next verse then said that God made man in his image. So only God, whoever God was talking to, helped him create the universe. He wasn't talking to the angels because the scriptures say that only God created the universe. Okay? So God referred to himself as us. Um, now, uh, God says this also, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, verse 7, let us go down and confuse their languages, okay? Uh, later on, Genesis 19, 24, the Lord appears to Abraham with two angels, and then eventually uh, says that the Lord, who's on earth, the Lord, rain fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. So you have lots of these little clues of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it wasn't until John 14, 15, and 16 where it becomes very, very clear. Uh, with the exception, of course, of when Jesus was praying to, to the Father, and then and the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus into the wilderness, like in Matthew 4, verse 1. Um, but whatever the case, when God refers himself in the plural, our Jesus-only friends will say this. They'll say that this is the plurality of majesty. Kings, especially in the Anglo-Saxon world, British kings have often referred to themselves, a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, 
the king will say, instead of saying, I have decided to institute such and such a law, they will say, we have decided to institute such and such a law. It's a poetic way for a king to talk about himself. I'm so important, I refer to myself as we, not I. Okay? And so they will say that's all that God is doing there, is the plurality of majesty. Okay? Problem is, number one, there is no record of it, of the usage of the plurality of majesty before the Christian era. Now Moses, writing in 1500 B.C., that was 1,500 years before the Christian era even began. And we have no record of the plurality of majesty being used as a figure of speech before the Christian era. In fact, the earliest we see it, the earliest we see any evidence of this is 13th century A.D. Uh, when Anglo-Saxon kings began to refer to themselves in the plural. And guess why Anglo-Saxon kings began to refer to themselves in the plural? Because they were in a quote-unquote Christian culture. So they saw from Genesis 1 that God refers to himself in the plural. And so they decided to do the same. Pretty, pretty bold and arrogant thing to do. Um, but let me say this. What this shows is that the plurality of majesty is not the reason why God calls himself us. God calling himself us is the reason for the plurality of majesty, which came up later on, okay? Uh, almost 3,000 years uh, later. So, uh, by the way, the late Dr. Walter Martin, the first Bible answer man, um, he stressed this point, as does uh, Gleason uh, Archer, Jr., uh, one of the world's leading Old Testament scholars. I believe he's still at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, so this is verified by some of the uh, great Christian thinkers out there. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. King David said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, I ask Jesus only person, how many persons are being talked about, spoken about there? And they, 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 I said, one. I said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You know, you got two persons of the Trinity being spoken of there. It's God the Father telling God the Son, sit at my right hand. And uh, very, very <coughs> Probably, probably the clearest passage in the Old Testament on the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead. <clears throat> Look at Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. Um, you get other clues in the Old Testament as well. In the book of Judges, you hear about Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and the spirit of Yahweh being spoken about a different passage. Just little, little tiny hints. Um, uh, I mean, in the first verse of the Bible, says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You think, well, no big deal. But it isn't, the word for God isn't El. It's not the word for God in the singular. It's not Elah, E-L-A-H. The word for God meaning dual, you know, two. But it's Elohim, the word for God in the plural. 
three or more. But it's joined by the singular verb, bara, for create. So the only way to, it, 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 the most literal way you can translate that verse is, in the beginning, one God, Barrett demands one, one subject. In the beginning, one God of three or more created the heavens and the earth. So right, very first verse of the Bible, you get a hint at the, at the Trinity. But Isaiah 48, verses 12 to 16, verse 12 lets us know who's talking. It says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my call, I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. Guess who's talking? God. I am He. I am the first, I am the last. Okay, obviously, God is speaking. Same passage down a few verses, verse 16. Here's what God says. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. And God is speaking. From, the, from the, the time that it was, I was there. I was there from the beginning. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Um, you know, I'm sure the Jewish rabbis looked at that. I can see two ancient Jewish rabbis looking at that. You know, Isaiah wrote this about 700 years before Christ, but maybe a couple hundred years later, 500 B.C., two Jewish rabbis looking at that, one rabbi telling the other rabbi, asking the other rabbi, so what do you think about this passage? And the other rabbi scratching his head and saying, uh, I don't want to mess with it. Let's just move on. Because it's, I wouldn't want to mess with that. Until Jesus shows up on the scene and said that the Father sent me, and when I return to the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, another comforter, and until Jesus shows up on the scene and just spells it out, I wouldn't want to mess with that passage either. Okay? Um, but it's, again, an Old Testament hint of the doctrine of the Trinity. Revelation 4 and 5, read those chapters, and what you find is people are bound before God's throne in heaven. Are they going to bow before anybody else's throne in heaven? No, you know, you know, only God is going to be worshipped in heaven. Yet Revelation 4 and 5, they're not only bowing before the throne of God, but they're also bowing before the throne of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the Lamb who was slain. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses might not like that. But the fact of the matter is, there you have two separate members of the Trinity and both are being worshipped. Jesus is being worshipped. And Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, um, do a whole other heresy here, but uh, Jesus is called Yahweh over and over again. He's called Jehovah over and over again in the Old Testament. Anytime you're, Jesus is referred to in the Old Testament, like, uh, and then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him, Zechariah 14, 5, the second coming of Christ, it's Yahweh Elohim. Lord is with all capital letters. So Yahweh is being spoken about. Um, Jesus is called, the, the, the descendant of David, is called the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. It's Yahweh Sidkenu. Jesus is called Yahweh. 
or Jehovah. Um, and the list goes on and on throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah is referred to uh, as Yahweh. Okay, um, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, uh, there we can find God is speaking of his Son, and he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father calls Jesus God. But again, they're two separate persons that uh, are, are speaking there. So, um, you know, the list goes on and on. I've got other, other passages listed. Uh, let me just say a few words about the testimony of the early church. Here you have some of the apostolic fathers listed. They wrote between 95 A.D. and 156 A.D. Clement of Rome wrote his letter in 95 A.D. Okay? Um, the last of the Apostolic Fathers died in 156 A.D. Polycarp, the pupil of the Apostle John. The Apostolic Fathers were the pupils of the Apostles that the Apostles selected to lead the early church. Okay? So these guys were like the A-plus students of the Apostles. Okay, if you're leading a whole Bible study and you've led it for 10 years and Joe Schmo comes to your study but always gets it wrong and Johnny Wright always gets it right, after 10 years, now you're going to move out of state. Who are you going to leave in charge of the study? Joe Schmo, who always gets it wrong? No, you're going to go to your A-plus student. But when we go uh, to the Apostolic Fathers, Clement of Rome, the Epistle of Barnabas, we don't know who really wrote it. They, they, uh, we're pretty sure it wasn't Barnabas, hence the title, the Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, Ignatius, the pupil of the Apostle John, Polycarp, a pupil of the Apostle John, Ignatius died in 115 A.D. He was torn to by animals. Um, but when you read their writing, did they come out with a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity? No, but they taught that there's only one God. They spoke about the Father as being God, the Son as being God, and the Holy Spirit as being God. And just like the Bible, they spoke about them as three separate persons. Did any of them have the guts to pull all of that together? No. I wouldn't have the guts either. I would just say, hey, don't try to...